The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to another episode of The Things We All Carry. This week, I have my first international guest. Daniel is a 20-year firefighter paramedic from Western Canada. He's also the artist and creative genius behind Dan Sun Photo Art. Daniel was diagnosed with PTS in 2014, and his art gave him an outlet to express feelings and emotions associated with PTS. Along the way, he decided to share his art and was surprised and heartened by the reaction. We spent an hour or so talking about life and a few pieces of his art that stood out to me. I've linked the five pieces we discuss in the show notes. You can find them at the thingsweallcarry.com backslash blog. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responders you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Make sure that we're picking up. And looks like we are. Okay. So if you're ready, get that introduction going and we can start talking. Good? Yep. All right. So joining me today is Daniel. He's an artist that I found on Instagram. And he is, his art has an impact on myself and many first responders because I have people send it to me and say, hey, you got to talk to this guy. He, you can find him on Instagram under Dan Sun Photo Art, and I'm going to let him tell you more places he can find you. But just so you guys know, he's a 20-year vet, firefighter, and paramedic. He's getting ready to retire, which is, first of all, congratulations for that. And like I said, I'll let him tell you where he can, where you can find him, and then we'll get into some of his family life and professional life. How you doing, Daniel? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for being on. Thanks. Oh, thanks for having me on your show. Tell people where they can find you and what your history is. All right. You can find me under dansonphotos.com is my main website, but I think if you just Google Dansung, which is actually the first three letters of my first and last name, that's how I came up with that. I'll pop up in the first couple of hits there, I think. So easy to find me there. But dansonphotos.com is my main website. And then from there, there's links on my social media. And yeah, I'm a paramedic firefighter. I've been doing it full time for about 20 years, just about ready to retire. And I create the artwork as a result of my therapy after being diagnosed with PT the first time in 2014. And then now I'm going to be changing my careers. I'm actually in school right now, actually I'm taking a two-year program to become a counseling therapist. Oh, awesome. Specialized in emergency services. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We definitely need more of that. I think one of the major complaints we hear is, oh, I can't talk to people that don't know what I've been through. So if someone has been a 20-year vet and then going through a counseling program is perfect. Yeah, there's a lot to be said. I think lots of us are going that route, which is great. I think that's a valuable resource from my own experiences. And I've had great luck with most of my therapists because they've had experience working with emergency workers before, but if they don't, then even just getting past vocabulary and the lingo could be a challenge. No, that's something you don't want on top of all the other things you're trying to deal with. Yeah, it's very true. We do have our own vernacular and having to explain what you're saying to somebody when you're trying to explain what you're thinking to begin with is difficult. Yeah, that's for sure. So where were you brought up? What's family life like for you? I'm Canadian. I'm in Western Canada near the Rocky Mountains. Oh, beautiful. Born and raised here. And shortly after high school, I decided to travel. So I lived in several countries around the world earlier in my life, mostly along the equator and had some amazing experiences doing that. I worked as an English teacher and second language did that for uh, several years in Egypt. I lived in Japan, Cayman Islands, lived in Indonesia. So that really gave me a lot of experience and really widened my concepts of what the world was like after living in all these different countries. And now I'm very lucky as an artist, I get to quite a bit all around the world as well as an artist exhibiting my artwork. So I'm very lucky that I've had a lot of opportunity to, to travel in my life. How do you think that, what kind of lessons do you learn from travel? I think it really changes your perspective, it did for me. So for me, it was when I would live in different countries and see how other people live. And that was good, a good teacher for me, both good and bad. I try to adapt some of the wonderful things that I saw there 
cultures do and try to emulate that. And then I'd also be very grateful for some of the places I've been, feel very lucky that where I lived, it wasn't like that. So it was very eye-opening for me and really broadened my horizons. And uh, I don't know, I think everyone should do a bit more traveling. I think that's, I'm going to start to describe, but it's really widened my view on relationships and on life and on people. And I think it really molded who I am as a person. I did a lot of my traveling in my late, started in my early twenties, actually, and traveled for 10, 15 years. So I really molded me to really change my character. I think for the better, I hope. Who knows? I was going to, I was going to add that coming from an American point of view, that many of the people I talk to who haven't traveled are so insular and they don't know or not that they don't know, they just don't realize that there's such value to other cultures. Mm-hmm. I think so. And, and so it's so important to learn that. And especially as first responders, how many cultures do we interact with on a daily basis? Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, that's true. So you mentioned, yeah, I think I have a better understanding because I think we tend to the default to that's not, if we don't know enough familiar with it. I think most people's default is not accepting it or refuting it in some way versus accepting it. So for many years, for 10, 15, I was the owner. I was the odd one in the group living in Japan as a big bald guy that I did not fit in at all there. I didn't even fit in like on the train and go to the bathroom. Like I just didn't fit anywhere because I was so much bigger than everyone out there, but. Uh, that was a wonderful experience. I loved Japan. Japan was one of my favorite countries that I lived in. But the culture and the history that they have is just really incredible and rich. And I really enjoyed my time. And of course, the people, the part that I enjoyed most about traveling is really getting to know the people there. And in some ways, they're not as different as I think most of us would think, but they are different in my experiences in wonderful ways, which is very enriching for me. It's funny that you mentioned Japan as one of the best or one of the places you enjoyed the most. I was talking to a friend the other day that, that Japan or even Vietnam would be one of those spots that I want to visit. And I think it's because you can't hide. Yeah. <laughs> you stand up, you stand, you stand up pretty big. Yeah. Especially like for me, I'm a, I'm, my heritage is I'm Danish and Ukrainian. So I'm a big, bald, pale tasty white guy and I just did not fit in Japan and in Egypt and I really stood out. But when I was there, I was very well accepted in every, every place that I went to. People were very curious about me and they were very welcoming and they were very, I never felt shunned. I never felt discriminated against and being in those cultures, I always felt more of a curiosity than anything. It's a great start to a, to an adult life though, because it's a lesson learned to, to treat people that way instead of as a lot of people do as strangers. Yeah, I think so. Right? I think that did really set a lot of like date standards for me, continuing on through my life. I think that's been travel. I think it's been one of my biggest teachers. So then you do 20 years. You're in the tail end of a 20 year career as a firefighter paramedic. Yeah, that's right. So I decided after traveling and I became hit 30, I should probably stop traveling and get a real job. And actually, before I started traveling, I did go to school and became, I uh, got my EMT license. So I went to school and I got my EMT basic. And right after that is when I started traveling. So then I traveled for several years and then I came back. I wanted to continue doing that. Went back to school, became an advanced care paramedic, graduated that at 35. And now I'm 55. And I did that straight for 20 years. And that was another, the reason I wanted to become a, an emergency worker is I really wanted to live life on the edge, which I felt I was doing anyway through traveling. I was really experiencing a full enriched life and I wanted to continue that. And I thought that would be a great way to do that. And it certainly didn't disappoint after being a paramedic firefighter for 20 years. I certainly saw lots of things that most people don't outside of our profession, but really didn't disappoint my expectation of living a full life, living on the fray edge of life and it's been wonderful overall mostly you do mention pts a diagnosis of pts and you said 2014 if i heard you correctly yeah so 2014 is the first time and that's when i started creating the artwork so the artwork is a result of my therapy so i started having these symptoms and i didn't understand what was happening i didn't know that i had post-traumatic stress it didn't happen to me the way i thought it would normally happen of what my 
knowledge of it was. I always thought that it was your normal, then you have that one call. And then after that one call, then you're essentially impaired from that experience, that one experience. But for me, it was a gradual onslaught of all these traumatic calls that eventually started to change my personality and started to change who I was. And I didn't recognize that happening. So once I, once it was brought to my attention that was happening, then I was diagnosed and I got assessed and was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. And part of my therapy through the suggestion of my therapist was to create this artwork. At the time I was doing pictures of landscape and animals and that same kind of style or same kind of look. And my psychologist said, why don't you use your hobby as a way to process and purge the emotions and feelings you're having? And I thought, that's a horrible. Why would I want, why would I want to, I'm trying to forget that stuff. The reason I'm here is I want you to give me a pill so that I don't have to worry about that stuff. I want you to turn it off. Yeah. Don't let me I feel that. Doesn't. Yeah. I goes, it doesn't look that way. I'm like, oh, so he said, I like, I don't, why I'm trying to sweep this under the rug. I don't want to concentrate on it. But he was right. So all, a lot of the artwork that I do even now is the result of trying to purge these feelings and emotions that keep haunting me. So I don't really, I don't censor the artwork. I don't, when it's for therapeutic value for me, I don't think what other people are going to, how people are going to react. I don't, it has to be authentic in order for it to be therapeutic for me. So it starts off as, and I described it like this, I described it as a, as an organic monster that lives in my mind, that invades my consciousness uninvited. I would describe those feelings and emotions. They weren't necessarily flashbacks, but they were just these feelings and emotions that zapped into my mind. And once I would purge them through the, through our work, that wouldn't happen. It's like I trapped them into this two-dimensional picture. And how my process works is I'll think about that emotion and then an image of how I can portray that complex idea in an image pops into my head. And then I try to recreate what image popped into my head through staging it. So I stage it with my peers, I photograph it, and then I digitally draw and paint on top of that photograph. And when I'm doing that, I'm trying to recreate not so much what I saw, what that call represents visually, it's more what that call represents emotionally. So I'm trying to recreate how I felt through Photoshop and digital painting. And that's when I demons representing trauma and angels representing what come. I put ghosts in there representing my patients and the Grim Reaper representing death. And so my psychologist was right. It was a very cathartic and therapeutic process for me to really, essentially what I was doing is I was processing these calls, these emotions so that they wouldn't pop in my head anymore. And she was right. So it was never my intention to share them either with anybody because the first thing that I did, the show firefighter and paramedics in the vulnerable state with gloved hands on their head. And that's not something that I wanted to share because we're supposed to be these infallible heroes. Right. And I didn't want to share that with my friend thinking that they would really crucify me. Hey, Dan, what's wrong with you? What do you, we're not like this at all. So I didn't for a long time. I didn't share the artwork for a really long time, but it was still very therapeutic for me. So I continued to do that. But then when I did decide, that's when I realized that other firefighters and emergency workers would look at the artwork and attach their own experience to it and it would have different meaning to them, which made me feel like I'm not alone, which was very therapeutic. Probably one of the biggest parts of my recovery was that knowing that I wasn't alone in feeling that. And that's why I think your podcast is so great because everyone is coming on and sharing their experiences and none of the, it's going to make people realize that, Hey, it's okay. The secret is to acknowledge it get treatment for it so you can get better and you can get better. Yeah. And it's similar to my own therapy because I, one of the things brought to my attention, which is not a surprise to me, but it still needed to be brought to my attention was that I internalize everything and I'm not, I wasn't talking to anybody about it. And so what I've been doing is I've added the writing to my repertoire of just when I feel these feet, when I feel these emotions welling up, it's time to write. And what I need to get better at is writing before the emotions start to boil up. And so that's a learning process for me, but it's along the same lines as what you're saying with your art. It's just a way to, to regurgitate it and get it out there and process it. Yeah. I think for me, it, and writing is also very creative. It's accessing a different part of the brain that really isn't involved in the other parts of my traumatic life. 
by focus on that one part. And that I think really, I don't know, I'm not a brain neurologist, brain mapping guy, but I, for me, if I could focus on that one separate part of my brain, which I do when I create the artwork, really seems to help. So I, I really do, I encourage others to do something creative and you don't have to be good at it. No, I hear often people saying, my God, I wish I can draw. I can't draw a stick man. You don't really have to be good at it. It's accessing a creative, it could be wood carving. It could be lots of different things. It's just something different. A lot of RP here, they go hunting They're They do a lot of exercise. They do there's lots of different things that people do that help folks that filter out I think the trauma that we have. I think that's a great creativity is creativity. It's just because my creativity isn't your photo art. It's still my creativity and it's still my way of yeah. processing it. Yeah, I play guitar too and I'm not very good. <laughs> so people don't invite me on their podcast to talk about my guitar playing, but it's still very therapeutic for me and I do it every day because it accesses that same part of my brain. So it's still very valuable to me that I have that resource. I, you don't really have to, I don't think you have to be, you just have to access that part of your brain. And really what is good at anything, I guess it's, yeah, it's such a subjective. Yeah, I had the bubble to, right. Yeah. So you said 2014 was the initial time you were diagnosed with PTS. And what happens the next time? When was the next time for that? Yeah, so I had the first diagnosis in 2014, and I started doing the artwork, which is really good. But then over time, the symptoms started to creep back up on me. And I, the difference that time was that I really recognized, I knew what the symptoms were this time, but I had some really new severe symptoms like hallucinations and memory loss, things that my wiring somehow came back and hit me in a different way. And so I went back to my psychologist and for some reason I had to get, go through the whole testing again, which wasn't great, but then I was confirmed that I had PTS and then I started the treatment again. But yeah, it was, I didn't realize that would, and I don't know if it was Again, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a brain guy, but yeah, I really came back seven years later and little kicked me in the ass, which is why I really, I'm leaving a service actually, because I, I need to do something else. I guess my bucket is full. Yeah. Still over there. Maybe, you know, it's just, maybe it was just about, okay, you've done your share. 20 years is a long time doing this work. And I think maybe it's just my time was up. It is a long time. And I've recently had that discussion with a couple of people about what is enough for our bodies equipped to deal with this job for 20 to 30 years. And I firmly, I don't believe it. I don't think we are. I think that some people can successfully do it and come out just fine, but it just depends on what your experience is within those years. That's right. And how prepared you were to deal with that. And I think that it's that preparation part that we need to work on for newer guys coming into the fire service, newer, newer guys and gals coming into the fire service, because if we can prepare them and we can let them know, Hey, it's okay to, or not. Okay. It's necessary to talk then I think that length lengthens the healthy part of your career. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's more, it's normalizing. I try to, what I see there, what they're doing in Australia and England and other parts of the world, that they're really normalizing the mental injury uh, and equalizing it with the physical injury where no one thinks you're weak because you broke your femur because you fell through a floor in a fire. No one's going to think, oh, you maybe shouldn't do this job because you broke your femur. But for some reason, go through a traumatic experience that you break your mind. For some reason, that's not, you're not strong enough, which is weird. So I think that what other parts of the world are doing is they're trying to equalize mental and physical injury mindset, and which would eventually decrease that stigma. I think what um, you said there is key. It's the mental injury. And I think we need to reframe yeah. that completely in every fire department. It needs to be discussed as a mental injury. Yeah. Because that's yeah, what. I think when you can have two firefighters fall through the floor and one of them might break their leg. But that other firefighter is going to say, I didn't break my leg. Why did you break your leg? What's wrong with you? You shouldn't be a firefighter. No one would ever say right. ridiculous. But for some reason, you can have two firefighters do a call. Okay, man, I don't know why you're so upset about this call. I'm not upset. Some reason that stigma is there. It's weird. If you can really think about it, it's, it's a weird thing that why we do that. It why is a very odd thing. Yeah, it, yeah, that is a very odd thing. And that's something that's in the description of my show. Your trauma is your trauma. And it's it, but that experience is everybody. So let's talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. So the art, 
I love the art, and I got to tell you, the first one that stood out to me, and I think I saw it, and then I had multiple people send it to me, and then I've seen it across social media, and it's the sanctuary trauma, and I'll explain it to people that may not have seen it. There's a firefighter sitting on the ground, and he's got a, looks like a tumbler in his hand, it says PTS up and down the tumbler, and then there's a white-shirted firefighter, I'm assuming a chief or a captain or something, and he's pouring a bucket of fuel on top of the firefighter. Yeah, and yeah, so, that's pretty controversial. Yeah, it's actually, what, what he's holding is a candle and it's ah. a flame lit. Yeah, now I see it. Yep, now I see that. Yeah, and, and that officer is blindfolded, so he's just ignorant mm-hmm. to the fact of what's going on. Exactly, he doesn't know what he's he doesn't know what he's doing. So that firefighter is sitting on the ground. He is trying to protect his his flame. He's trying to guard his and protect his trauma. Meaning that he's not really sharing, he's not really open about it. He's trying his best to manage it quietly. And what sanctuary trauma is, it's when somebody who experiences trauma, then later goes to a place where they're hoping to get support and validation, in turn receives more trauma. Now, in that specific piece, it is an officer because I see that often and I hear that often from our peers out work environments that are non-trauma informed is a nice way of saying toxic workplaces. But I think non-trauma informed workplaces is better because a lot of people don't, they don't really know, but it's not only the officers or management. It could also be your peers. It could be family. It could be lots of places that really don't have the tools to best support people suffering from, but regardless, it's still sanctuary trauma where you're hoping to get support somewhere and in turn you get more trauma. And many, and some studies show that secondary trauma is actually more traumatic than the first trauma. Some suggest that secondary trauma is a better predictor of stability and returning to work or not. So the important thing about that is a controllable, we may not be able to control that primary trauma. We understand we're going to see horrible things in our careers. We don't, we can't really control those. But what we can do after is controllable. That secondary trauma or sanctuary trauma is controllable by developing and helping organizations and families and coworkers be more trauma-informed. Yeah, I was was just going to make that mention that we we can change that completely. And that's just by that this whole just having a conversation and bringing it, bringing these, this treatment, bringing it to the light and shining a light on it and trying to extinguish that behavior. Yeah, that's right. And the thing is, people don't really know. There's really no roadmap. Well, as firefighters, we have occupational health and safety guidelines. For in my department, if we get a new chainsaw, we all need to get training on that chainsaw. Even if it's similar to the old chainsaw that we have, we need to go through that chainsaw. We know the safety parts about it. We all need to sign a piece of paper saying, yeah, we've done the training on this new chainsaw. So that way, if I'm at work and I cut my arm off using the chainsaw, then Occupational health and safety will come in. I'm like, hey, this is a workplace injury. Did Daniel receive this training? And then the organization will, yes, we did do this training as, as required through policy that we did that. So this was an accident and then they investigated as to what happened. So it won't happen again. I know it's a lot more difficult to do that with mental injury, but I think it can be done. And it is being done, I believe, in other parts of the world. I think it can definitely be done. I just, like we said, I think it's just a mindset that we have to get out of and then find that new mindset to, we'd have some new blood in leadership positions that are willing to accept the new thought behind it. Yeah. And the thing is leadership, they don't really know. So it's difficult because leadership has a lot on their plate already. They're trying to keep the ship afloat already. And then there's something else is coming on. So I believe that they really need help. I think they would need, look, here's, if you want to take care of the mental health of your employees, here's a guideline, follow this guideline. You don't have to come up with something. You don't need to, there is something to be said about just being a good human being as well, but that's probably another topic for another show, but it would be great if they could have a guideline, a mental health, a psychologically healthy workplace guideline that they had to follow. And I think most places would. If there was risk of liability or increased insurance rates or something, if let's say by chance in my fire department, I went, I did an entry on a fire and I was killed inside a fire. If that was investigated, 
and it was determined that I didn't have training to do entry, and then potentially that could be a, a liability of the fire department. Why did Daniel go into that fire when he didn't have the training? To, then that, they could be held liable for that. But if there were similar guidelines for, okay, Daniel killed himself, there's going to be an investigation. You bring in trauma from a previous career or childhood trauma that maybe was the result of this. And if not, okay, was he diagnosed with post-traumatic stress? Okay, if he was, what was the, ter- the determinant factor? Did he receive, did he have this trauma because of the calls that he's been on? And that's usually to research. Or is it because of working in a non-trauma-informed work environment or toxic work environment? And in some places, it gets determined that a firefighter, and I believe, I could be wrong, this is happening in, in Australia, I think. If a firefighter takes his life or her life, there's an investigation done. And if that investigation shows that trauma or that post-traumatic stress was due to a toxic work environment, then that organization is held liable. It would be if there was a physical injury. So it's already being done for physical injury. But for some reason, it's not being done for mental injuries. And I just had this discussion on another podcast. One of the things that we need to first do is just admit to the suicides because we're not admitting to all the suicides for exactly the same reason that you just said, I believe. And it's a financial reason. Yeah. Because once we once departments admit to it, then they have to figure out why and they have to start to figure out if they can a prevent it or B, do they pay out LOD benefits for it? Yeah. And. That scares people for the reason you just said, increased insurance rate, increased payouts. And that's terrifying to departments trying to save money already. I think I, the, and you're right, but I think that's really short-sighted because the flip side of that is, is if you take proper care of the mental health of your employees, there's many benefits in that. Their retention, less overtime, less sick time, less training. No, there's, it's going to affect the bottom line. If your staff and employees are healthy and happy, yes, no, there's going to be less time, less harassment and bullying. Problem. By doing that, it's going to, you're scared of bringing it up because of the liability. But the truth is that if they do it, it's probably going to save the money in the long run. I for, for many reasons. Completely right. agree with you. And that's like you said, it's short-sighted. And once we can finally get people to look beyond the bottom line in the short term, it, maybe we can make that change right there. Yeah. And I think what's going to, in my opinion, what's going to have to happen is that there's going to have to be some legislative involvement. And it, it's happening. Like I can see it coming in other parts of the world that's starting to come up where that responsibility is going to be, the department's going to be held accountable to government legislations. So then they're going to be forced to do that. And, I, and unfortunately, I think that's going to be the, only way that's going to I think that for mental health and I also think that for and this is a whole different subject that I won't get off on a tangent but I think it's also for the schedule and how we're getting sleep at work I think there's both going to be legislated in some manner at some point yeah 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 that is a totally different topic next to both <laughs> yeah we get that, that's a whole nother show right there the next piece of art that, that really jumped out at me was one that's called parasite and there's no there's just parasite but there's no real caption beneath the word parasite but i think it's pretty obvious what we're talking about here because it, it's a firefighter sitting in a turnout coat and he's got one hand on one side of his head and the other hand is holding a gun on top of his head and there's a kind of a burning in his brain and so I can make my own assumptions about this, but I'd love to hear what was in, in your, what was your idea when you made this one? Yeah. I'd, and when people look at the artwork, they do extrapolate their own interpretation of it, which is what I like. Cause it, I think the images are mostly just a catalyst for people to attach their own experiences to. So I don't usually like to explain my motivation for them okay, because I don't want people to think, and I will, but I don't want people to think that my the reason I created it isn't more valid than what another person's interpretation of it would be. So if someone looked at that picture and through their experiences, interpreted it in their own way, if they hear my interpretation of it, I don't want to lessen that interpretation for them. My interpretation isn't more, any more, doesn't, it's not more, doesn't hold more value because I'm the creator than, than someone else's interpretation from seeing it. Do you know what I mean? How about I do this? Um, How about I explain what I th- saw in it and then we can discuss from there. Sure. So what, obviously what I see is that there's a, there's that, that burning is a, is some sort of a demon up there that he can't just, he just can't let go of. And 
the one answer he's thinking of is he can just end it and he can use that weapon, put a bullet in his head and it's, and that part is over for him, but it's not over for everybody else. And so that parasite might be twofold. So he's trying to get rid of his own parasite, but then that suicide becomes a parasite for others. Yeah. Let's see a better interpretation of what my initial plan was. That's great. I never thought, I never even see him thought of it that way. That's brilliant. That's great. But yeah. When I created it and I used, I titled it Parasite on Purpose because it starts off, you don't know, and this is my experience with trauma, it gradually stuck up on me. So then eventually, slowly it, it eats away at you and you really don't even notice what's happening. And for me, it really rewired my brain and it was really starting to, to take over to the point where I felt that if I kill myself, then I'll be okay. That's kind of what my mind sense was. I thought I'm not, it's like squishing a bug, you know, I'm going to squish this bug and then I'll take that. My capacity to understand what it really meant to kill myself wasn't there anymore. My, my wiring was changed and I didn't really, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to leave my family. I just didn't want to feel anything anymore. And so I thought if I kill myself, then I'll be okay. It was like this cozy blanket. And I did a picture like that called the cozy blanket with the firefighters got this blanket wrapped around him and there's beans all around him. And on a blanket, it says suicide. So for that picture, for Parasite, yeah, it's that small glowing red dot that eventually gets bigger and bigger until it eventually takes over your brain and convinces you to take your life. But it's a slow, gradual thing that feeds off. And for me, the trickery of it that I wasn't, is that I wasn't aware of what was happening to me. That was the scary part. Yeah, and I think that Parasite... Brings to me, it brings also the word a description of kind of the word insidious. It's just something that you just can't get rid of, and it's just nasty. Yeah, yeah, but you can't get rid of it, and you can through. It's not as easy. Everyone has their own treatment for that. You just have to find the way that works for you. Yeah, and that's another thing about this show is one suggestion doesn't isn't. It's not one size fits all. So that's why I love to get it love to get an explanation from people about the different kinds of therapies and recoveries that they've gone through themselves and other people can go, okay, maybe that piece works for me. Maybe just talk therapy works for me, or maybe EMDR works for me or, or whatever, or maybe desensitization works for me. And so it's opening people's eyes to the different offerings that are out there. Yes. Yeah. And look, cause a lot of people don't even know what's available out there. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of weird stuff out there that, that works for some people. You just have to find out what what works for you. I think there's a place in Brazil where you can, if you're suffering from severe trauma, debilitating trauma, I think it's in Brazil, somewhere in Central America, maybe South America, that you can, they get you high on acid. So when you're high on acid and your mind is laid open, a therapist who is trained in psychotherapy during that state will go in there and tinker around with your brain and stay with you until you come up. And I've seen interviews of guys that have done that. Guys that can't leave their house and, and they go down there and do that and they're fine. If I'm not condoning that. I'm not saying everyone get high on that and go to your therapist, but that is an option that has worked for some people. At the risk of sounding reckless, I'm condoning it. I'm a huge supporter <laughs> of hallucinogenics. Yeah, my department knows it. I'm not, I don't hide that. I don't care who knows that. I'm a huge proponent of it. I think that it's a valuable tool in our recovery. And if I think yeah, that the South America one that, that I preach is ayahuasca, and it is, it's those retreats and it might be Brazil. I'm not sure which, there are a couple of countries you do them in and it's, it, there's almost a shaman to it and you take, you use the ayahuasca as, as a journey and it almost, not almost, it rewires the brain while you're in that state. And so if you, and then the, the African version is Ibogaine, which is a little more of the nuclear option, but it, I've heard, I've read reports of, of not only repairing that, that emotional pain, but it's repairing physical pain in some cases, but that goes back to the theory that trauma is stored in the body anyway. Yeah. So the next yeah. one. And if you, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, but, oh, no. I was going to start going down about the trauma in the body and acupuncture and all that stuff. But all valuable tools. I, I do. We'll be, we'll be talking forever if you start getting down. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's so many avenues we can go. But yeah, anybody that asks me, I completely support any of the psychedelics, the hallucinogenic. I think ketamine is a very valuable tool and it's, and, yeah. People don't realize that it is legal in all 50 states as a guided therapy. 
Yeah. So the next one I had identified as something I wanted to talk about was burning candle. And I think this is a big one for first responders today. And uh, I'll explain it to the audience again. And I'm going to link all of these images into the show notes. So people, when they're listening, they can go to the show notes and see what we're talking about. It's three first responders. I believe it's two police officers and a firefighter in the middle. And they're sitting on a candle that's burning from both ends. But it's not just burning from both ends. What it's suspended over is fire. Mm -hmm. And my assumption and what I see when I view this is the fact that we're not really taking care of ourselves off of duty. And we're taking on all this trauma on duty, all this pressure on duty that we're getting it from every direction, from left, from under, from on top. And we're not finding that release for ourselves. Yeah, that's right. It's actually at the paramedic, a firefighter and a police officer. Okay. All right. If you look closely at that one, the police officer is the only one that's noticing what's happening. She's looking but at she's looking over the edge. Right. Hey, this isn't safe. And then the other two are actually either whistling to each other or gossiping or something. But yeah, that's, and I see that a lot. It certainly happened to me. And unfortunately, I fell in that fire. And because it was, and there's many ways of interpreting that, depending on what you're, when I think of law enforcement and all the pressure that they have, and all the negativity that's going against that, while they're still trying to be professionally doing a job, and that's tough. I think firefighters, we have it a little bit easier, I think, but we also take, we identify with our career. So that I am a firefighter, I am a police officer, I am a paramedic. So when we leave our work, we're still, many of us have these shrines in our basements or in our offices, but works would never really leads them. And if that whole experience is a positive thing for you, then great. That's fantastic. But if you're starting to experience trauma from part of my treatment was that I had to release my identity with my profession in order for me to recover. So I had to be a paramedic and a firefighter at work. Then when I came home, I had to be a father and a husband and not be a paramedic or firefighter at home. How do that you, was really hard to do. How do you do that? Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah I, I know. It, it's, yeah, it, it's difficult to do. And it's not so much the letting go of the, of the, that identity. It's about putting your efforts where they belong. So at the fire hall, my attention and energy went to that work. When I was at home, my, I had to make the conscious decision to put my energy toward my family and things that weren't at work. And that was hard to do, but I had to do that in order for me to recover. And I had to make that that switch. I think that, and then realize that I'm, my, I'm not who, my job isn't who I am. It's just my job. No, that's exactly it. It's not what, it's not who we are. It's what we do. Yeah. And that's a very distinctive delineation there that needs to be had because like you said, everyone identifies as a firefighter, as a cop or as a paramedic instead of as Daniel. And you personalize it when you start to identify, obviously, as I think one of my earlier guests said, it's funny, I relay this story because he said, when people ask him, Hey, how are you? Or how you doing? It's easy to go. Eh, I'm all right. I'm good. But when they say, how's Daniel doing today? It took him by surprise, gave him pause and he thought about it and he went, Oh wait, that personalizes it for me. And I, he said he was unable not to answer that truthfully. Yeah, that's a good point. And so that goes along those lines. It's not, I'm not a firefighter. I work as a firefighter, but that's not me. Yeah, and it's not, it doesn't mean not having pride in what you do and being proud of what you do. No, not at all. Um, it's just that for me, it was filling over into other parts of my life. And some of it I couldn't control. I'm thinking of bringing calls home and trying to process my shift and then bringing it home. For me, if I concentrated on my family, that made that process a little quicker, where if I'd go home and still try to process and think about the, my shift and think about the calls and dwell and then send messages to my platoon mates and talk about stuff and on my off shift or go through my work emails and maybe do my stunts at home from for work and they do all the training, the online training stuff that I did, do that at home. Then I would never really leave work. So when I came home, I wouldn't do any of that stuff and concentrate, give my energy to, to who really needed it when I was at home. And that's perfect. And people can learn such a valuable lesson for that because I do see that. And I worry about the people that get so consumed by it, but that is their identity. And it's something that I've been trying to talk to people about. Just be you, be a human outside of work. Yeah. And maybe some people maybe can do both. Maybe they can do that part and still have enough left over for other parts of their life. But for me, after 
15, 20 years, I only have so much to give and I have to decide where my energy is going to, where my energy is going to go. So another one that I bookmarked is called experience. And I think that it's a powerful image because it's a split face, basically a split face, split helmet. And it's showing what I assume is half the left half is a recruit. And then the second, or the, excuse me, the right side is a captain and it's showing the progression, uh, a marked progression from the inexperience to the almost over experience and the toll that career takes on somebody. Yeah, that, yeah, that picture, I did that picture actually from one of our recruits in my fire department and one of our captains, our senior captains. So I took a picture of both of them and that's what their debut would look like. I blended their faces together to create the rigid, like the face of it. So it doesn't really look exactly either of them, but when I blended it together, then I really aged the captain's side or it's there. And for me, that's really what it, and that's really not meant to be a, I know you look at it and it, people would have interpreted it as being a negative thing, but it's, I didn't call experiences and only experiences a negative thing at all. It's a positive thing. But for me, after it did really change me in positive, probably in overall, now I'm looking back in my 20 year career, even though it almost cost me my life. Overall, it was a wonderful and very positive experience to be an emergency worker. And I promote it. And if anyone wants to get into it, I say, absolutely, you'll, there's nothing like it. And if this is, if you want to experience a full life and live life on the edge, then this is the job for you. And that didn't disappoint. So I think overall, it, the experience has been wonderful, but it also leaves it's not what that portrait was meant to be. And I think that's exactly what it came across to me as, and I didn't necessarily take it as a negative. I just took it as there's a toll that can be taken on a body and a mind and a spirit after 20, 30 years in the job. That's true. But again, overall it's positive in my experience. I have this mindset of being a, and again, I'm only speaking on my, I don't like telling people what to do because I don't feel I'm, I have any authority or I'm in a place to do that, but I can share my experiences as a peer. And that's what I do through my artwork. So when I say things, it's based on my own experiences and the opinions of my own. But I try to live by the thought of tragic optimism or being a tragic optimist, which means I, I acknowledge, I did a picture about it. It's a big cherry blossom tree. It looks beautiful. And there's a little bulldog, which is me sleeping or resting underneath this tree. And there's lots of nature and bees and stuff. It's very nice and look at it. It's really pretty. And then there's a lemur looking far into the distance. And if you look closely far in the distance, there's a man hanging on a noose, which represents suicide. So that's danger far away. So that for me represents my attitude of tragic optimism, meaning that I have to recognize and acknowledge the tragedy or the trauma in my life in order for me to process them. And that's okay. But overall, I'm optimistic. My overall outlook is I'm a big believer and example of, and I see it so many of our peers of post-traumatic growth of people being better because of their trauma. And the law, although it's that picture experience showed like an old weather leathery experience, often we've seen some horrible things overall, we've seen some tragic things. Overall, it's an optimistic and positive experience, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a fantastic way of putting it. And that, 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 that tragically optimistic, is that how you termed it? I'm, I apologize. Make sure I've got your words yeah. correct. Yeah. So it, I feel I'm a tragic optimist. That's a brilliant way of putting it because I think that, I think most of us are because that's, we have to be, I think that relates to the, to almost that dark humor part of the, of the service where we find our ways to deal with the tragedy, but we're optimistic for the long run. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I really try to promote that and post-traumatic growth and share my experiences with that. I often hear people that are really struggling and they really, it seems like they don't really have a lot of, and I understand that when you're deep in that trauma and your brain is rewired and it's hard to see outside your perspectives change and it's hard to see outside the bubble of trauma. It could certainly seem that way. That, so I think for people like you and your podcast and others of us that have had similar experiences, but are now thriving because of, I don't want to put extra pressure on people that, okay, yeah, now you're in your trauma and you're feeling horrible and you're contemplating taking your life, snap out of it and get better and, and 
be better than you can. I'm not, I don't want to put that extra pressure on people. I just want people to be aware that, hey, this is, there's nothing special about me. I am no different than anybody else. And I've had some horrible experiences. And yes, I was suicidal. And it was a rough road to get to where I am now. But me and many other people have done it. So it is possible. I love that term post-traumatic growth. And that's not one that's bandied about enough today. PTS, PTSD, whatever the term is people want to use, that just, that's thrown out constantly. And it's always about the stress and the disorder and, and those letters, those three or four letters. But when you say PTG, people don't understand what it is. And then you explain that it's that post-traumatic growth and it's what comes after the recovery or comes through the recovery. And it's that it's so important to talk about that. So people will realize that you come out the other end and you're stronger and you're more equipped or you're better equipped to deal with life in general, not just the fire service or your experiences. Yeah. It's not really a foreign con like the bringing up people like, Oh, what is that? But if you think about it, it's quite prevalent in our society. Even if you use the analogy of going to the gym where you're going to the gym and busting muscle tissue, you're traumatizing your muscles and the result is that they're stronger. Or if you look at origin stories for a lot of superheroes, Batman, he sees his parents get murdered and then because of that trauma, he becomes what he is and Spider-Man and the Hulk and all these Wonder Woman and all these superhero origins are from trauma. And because of that trauma, now they're doing amazing things. And I see it. I, I know hundreds of emergency workers that have gone through severe trauma and because of that, and you and I are examples of my example of this, even this podcast, there'll be it's there and it's existed. Many religions believe that it's, so there's no growth without suffering. And I don't know if they agree with that. In Japan, there's a, an art form called Katsuki where they take a clay bowl and they smash it and they rebuild it using gold lacquer. So right. when it's done, it, it looks way nicer and has way more character than before it was damaged. And that's a great analogy for post-traumatic growth that because of that trauma, it actually has more character and it's more beautiful because of that trauma in the end. Yeah, I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, it's a wonderful concept that I think I'm trying to make more people aware of. Yeah, I'm trying to make myself more aware of it because in my own journey with therapy, which is very recent, because I've been very open about my journey with therapy, and it's, it is a recent thing for me, that one of the things that's first done in my sessions, it seems like nowadays is, all right, let's talk about what the week was like, obviously, and how I dealt with things. And then it's her making sure that she's pointing out the things I've done, the growth that I've had in that week and the reaction to certain things and how I would have reacted versus how I did react. And it's made that, that post-traumatic growth more apparent to me. So moving on to the next one, cause we, I got a couple more I want to talk about. Then I have a few questions for you. The, the other one that stood out to me was frayed and it's a darker, darker one. In my opinion, it's a firefighter sitting, he's got his helmet on hands on his elbows, on his knees, heads bowed down a little bit. And on the left side of the image is, is there's an angel looking down upon him. And then on the other side is some sort of a demon looking down upon him. And I know that you mentioned what some of the angels and demons represent for you. And is that still the case in this piece? Yeah. So that's trauma and recovery. So afraid, meaning that everything is good and contained, but on the edges, it's coming apart. And that's what that image represents. But also with things being frayed, that if you pull on that string, then it's just going to get more so that's a firefighter contemplating, balancing, you know, his good days and his bad days or his trauma and his recovery, whatever his trauma is or whatever his recovery is. But because it's frayed, unless he doesn't get a handle on it and recognize or acknowledge what's happening, that frayed part or that trauma part or that demon part in that picture is going to overtake both sides, him and the recovery side is what the concept for that picture is. And to me, there's a piece of this that, that speaks to my own personal experience with, that I've had conversations about, and it's the, it's, it doesn't have to be, or in with emotions or with experiences, it can be, and so you can have a negative emotion, quote, quote unquote, a negative emotion. I hate the word negative emotion, but you can have a negative one with a positive one. You can have them together and there's, and they're very valid still. It's not an either or scenario. Yeah, no, and that's about acknowledging it, about being tragically optimistic, meaning acknowledge the tragedies and don't try to, the opposite of that, of being tragically optimistic is being a toxic positivist. You, it's not sweeping everything under the rug and pretending that everything is okay. It's acknowledging what's happening in order 
for you to get the treatment and recover from it. And that's okay. All right. So the final one, the final piece that, that stood out to me and by no means are these the only ones that stood out to me, but I know that we have limited time to, to discuss them all is one that you have titled standing on the shoulders of the fallen. Mm-hmm. And it's a skull, it's an animal skull. I'm assuming it's some sort of, I'm not sure what the animal is, but on coming out of, or sitting on top of that skull are the words that says stigma, correct? That's right. And yeah, then so stigma, so if you look closely at that, it's not, it's actually like a demon skull. Okay. So it's not really, uh, yeah, yeah I tried to demonize it a little You're bit. right. Now it does favor the demon from the last, from Freyd as well. And then on top of that is a Phoenix. And I'm going to go ahead and assume, and I know it's dangerous, but I'm assuming that everybody knows what the meaning behind a phoenix is. It's rising from the ashes and being stronger from that tragedy is my guess that, that as a fire service or as people in general, the people that we've lost along the way might teach us to be stronger in the aftermath. Yeah. If you look farther back in the distance of that picture, there's the man hanging on the noose again, which is representing suicide. I see it now. way in the distance. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the idea of that picture is, unfortunately, and I do a memorial portrait every day because I get requests. I have get several requests every day, and I have a separate Facebook page and I do memorial portrait for emergency workers. And I don't often I don't know the cause of death, but sometimes they let me know that it was suicide. So it's continuing to happen. And that's just the fact. Like there is, we are killing ourselves because of the trauma that we're experiencing. And it depends, and I don't assume that the trauma, the origin of that trauma is from the cause we go on. It could be from many different reasons, but many of us are dying and that's continuing to happen. And I think it's getting worse, but I think every time that happens, it raises awareness a little bit. It's a paramedic firefighter or a police officer or somebody. I think it's more evident in that area, if it's even known that it's a suicide, that it raises the awareness a little bit. So there, the fact that person died that way is raising the awareness, which is fueling either improvements or changes through their sacrifice. And again, this is my opinion. So in that picture, there's suicide in the background. It's in a desert atmosphere. The idea is that the skull is trauma, a demon skull, that eventually through the sacrifice of that person who took their life in the background is eventually, I hope, going to kill that stigma, which is what that skull is. And there's going to be a rebirth, which is what that phoenix is. I'm hoping that that rebirth is what we were discussing early on in this conversation about overall culture change, where instead of trying to design better armor or better life job, we're going to try to stop the bullets or repair the sinks and ship, put our focus on what's causing this trauma and repair that. And I think that will happen. And unfortunately, I think what fuels it is are these suicides that are continuing to happen every day. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're going we're to lose more before, before we make those changes, unfortunately. And our job is to I don't know, get to people before they, to get to that point. And like you yeah. said, stop this stigma. Yeah, which is a lot harder is it, it, you can't just, a lot of people say, let's just stop the stigma. If something happens, come forward. People do that and they get fired or they get stigmatized or they get removed from officer development programs or they do get stigmatized. So that stigma has teeth. It's not just the idea that we can just turn off. It really has to be a culture change, which is, it's just like rolling a mountain up a mountain. It's a lot of work. So what I'm going to, I want to read the last two sentences or it's that, yes, two sentences that you wrote underneath this standing on the shoulders that have fallen. And then we can move on to the few questions I have before we get to the end here. And it says, this piece honors all of our fallen brothers and sisters who have fallen to their mental in- injuries. It's their sacrifice that fuels my passion and desire to eliminate the ignorance and stigma of psychological trauma that still seems to be so prominent. And that stands out to me because I've relayed the story on the show before of why I started the show. And it was because a local, a former volunteer firefighter who was local killed himself in January of 21. And at that time he was the fifth firefighter in our region to kill himself in a year. And yeah. it wasn't talked about. And it was, it ran from rookie to veteran. And it was at that point I decided we had to do something different. And so this is exactly what I was talking about then 
And that sentence encapsulates it perfectly. So that's very well written and then the artwork is very intense. So thank you. No, thank you. I appreciate that. So that being said, the questions I wanted to talk to you about, and everybody knows I have two questions at the end I ask, and we're going to get to those, but I wanted to talk to you about the kind of issues for firefighters today, what you might see as the most pressing issue for firefighters today. For talking yeah, with mental health, I think it's that stigma. It's the stigma of there's still that suck it up buttercup, not only from managers or officers, but also from, we call ourselves a brotherhood, but yet when we really need it. And again, I'm generally speaking here. I know there's many departments that are very supportive and very forward thinking when it's coming, when it comes to mental health support and uh, new modalities in changing culture. But I think overall, when you look at even the statistical data, if you can find any accurate data on firefighter suicide, it's pretty scary. And it's still difficult, I think, for many of us to come forward with, hey, that call strained my brain a little bit. I think I, I got a mind fracture. I need to get help from that. That it, instead of, okay, well, sure, go get help. I hear the resources, we'll give you whatever you need. Get fixed up. Let us know how we can facilitate that for you. And then come back to work when you're all good. You know, similar to, oh, I sprained my knee on that call or my ankle on that call. I have to be out for a little. That's okay. Then you get that stuff done. I set up, do whatever you need. And then once you get your know, return to work, letter from your doctor, and come back to work. For some reason, it's not like that with, with mental. We don't even considered an injury, it's still, I think in many places in fire departments, it's considered a, an illness. And I've never met a fire chief or a fire department that didn't say that mental health wasn't a priority for them. It clearly translates to the men and women on the floor that actually feel that is happening. But I really think there needs to be a, a culture change for more awareness, more equalization, more normalization of mental injury for firefighters. I think that's what really needs to happen. And that continues to be a challenge for us, I think. And it's ironic that you answered it that way. And because my next two questions relate to that. Where did you, where would you want to see the fire service go in the future? And what common sense change in mental health? What would be a common sense change in mental health? And I think that was well answered with the first answer. It's let's destigmatize and make this an injury, not an illness and change that vernacular and change the approach. Yeah. If you think of, if you think of toxic, I'm trying to get away from saying toxic work environments because that's a negative way of saying trauma-informed work environment. So if we, if you look at non-trauma-informed work environments and look at retention, bullying and harassment, sick time, it costs lots of money to hire and train firefighters. If you can have a trauma-informed work environment or work toward having a trauma-informed work environment, then it's common sense to me that the whole organization is going to benefit from that. So when we do go out and see these horrible things and experience trauma through our job, we can come back to our station and then be in the trauma-informed work environment where that type of things are normalized and which will prevent the sanctuary trauma aspect of it. So there's, it's, it's a win-win. It's a win for the organization. It's a win for the firefighter and it's a win for the people in our community that we're serving. So it, it, that seems common sense to me instead of the, okay, if you can't hack to get out, feel sure if you can't hack I'm going to get out, maybe kill myself. Then you're going to have to re up to that point. I wasn't probably very productive. I was probably using a lot of sick time. I was probably angry and toxic in my work environment, which isn't good for anybody. And then you have to fill my position. So you have to do interviews, it takes time. So you have to retrain a firefighter. You have to buy gear for that firefighter. Like that, to say, if you can't hack it, get out. There's a lineup of people lining up to, to take your place. And I think that's really narrow-minded. It makes more sense to, to be trauma-informed with the firefighters that you have. You have the experience and to cultivate that to enrich your existing Working, but that seems like common sense to me. And I hope that's where I hope we can go in the future. I have a brother who works at EA games in Vancouver and it, I went to his workplace. So they do video games there. They make all these video games. And this place is like a college campus. There's volleyball courts. There was in his area, he's the director of, I can't remember what he said, but he had him a cease in his place. He goes, none of my guys have, none of the people that I work with have hours. They have deadlines. And my job as their director is to facilitate them and to support them and to give them what they need. 
And they said, yeah, I need a, I need a masseuse here because no ladder could be used a lot. So we hired a full-time masseuse that came in, which then made them more productive. And it will look like it is. But I'm not saying, maybe I am saying, maybe we should have full-time masseuse <laughs> fire but would not be awesome. That would be awesome. The point, the point is that it's not like the whole attitude of that whole workplace was yeah. what's facilitating the productivity of, and that's a very high stress, high pressure environment, but they recognized to have a, a work environment that was very supportive so that the employee can be as productive as possible as possible was beneficial to everybody. And I wish we'd adopt a little bit of that, of that, that work type in the fire service. Uh, you know, uh, and Google does that and Apple did that and but Amazon, only run Amazon, but even Mary Kay and makeup does that. They have this attitude of, we will, a happy employee, the productive employee, instead of, you do this because we told them. I wish that was more prevalent in the fire services. I'll trade you a masseuse in every firehouse for a, a an infrared sauna in every firehouse to help us. I was in Finland. I toured all through Finland and every fire department in Finland has a sauna. It's brilliant. And every... Even the brand new ones, like when they're building a brand new fire hall, you get through sauna. And I talked, I spent a lot of time with firefighters there. And yeah, I read some studies where actually saunas are bad. <laughs> well, after a fire, unless you clean properly, to then right. open up those pores and all the toxins come in. Yes. But when I talked to the firefighters about that in Finland, they said the true benefit of having those saunas is decompressing after a call. Mm. So they would have their fire if they did a big stretch fire. They'd all shower and get all the toxins off and then they'd all go out the sauna. But what happened in that sauna was the decompression of that call. And all of them said, that's the true value of it. It's not opening up the pores and sweating out toxins. Yet they, that is in Finland, I believe that every firehouse, even brand new ones, will have the sauna in there. And I think that's great. Yeah, that's a wonderful idea. And I, that's another one that I fully support. And yes, done correctly. Let's shower and get all the gross de- de- contamin- or contaminants off and get rid of that yeah. and then go into the sauna. I, yeah, definitely. I always have this running joke with my chief. I said, Chief, when are we getting our machines? <laughs> because you got damn no problem next budget cycle and putting it in. And that was like a running joke between us for 20 years. Because <laughs> he would always ask, What do we need in the fireball? Well, chief, we need a machine. We need a full time machine here. He goes, Yeah, I'm going to put it in down. But it never happened. <laughs> All right. The last two questions I ask every guest, and I discussed them real quick with you before we started recording, was first, uh, I call the show The Things We All Carry based off the novel, uh, The Things They Carried. And it talked about, it's a platoon in Vietnam taking taking items into war, but it was more about what they brought out of war with the mental scars and the emotional damage. And we do the same thing in a fire service. We take our tools into a call and then we bring that emotional stuff out of a call. What I like to ask people is something in their day-to-day life that they have on their person, an everyday carry that they have, that they feel naked without and to see what your answer is to. Yeah, I don't really, I actually have, I've designed a challenge coin and I'm still waiting to get it from me, but it's no, many firefighters we have have a challenge coin and if you get a coin and you don't have the coin on yet, then you really have to buy drinks for everybody. But. I designed a coin that has my logo on one side and then one of my art pieces on the other. And my, I'm going to carry it with me all the time. And what it's going to represent for me, or you have in my pocket, is that reminder of my talisman is what I, it's going to be like, where it's going to be a reminder of my experiences and how I was tricked, how I felt I was tricked, how my trauma snuck up on me and almost fooled me into taking my own life. And so that, I feel like for me, it's going to represent a, what I'm doing now on my post-traumatic growth. Because I'm not a mental health superhero by any means. I wake up, I don't have some really bad and I'm planning to keep that. And that's going to be a reminder of my growth and my recovery and my post-traumatic strength. And that's kind of why I don't have it yet. And I, some days I wish I did. But it's just going to be a symbol that I'm going to keep with me all the time. And I won't offer it to anybody else. It's going to be very personal to me. I'm just going to have probably five made because... It costs as much to have five made as it does to have to get one made. Yeah. But it's just going to be a symbolic talisman that I'm going to keep with me all the time. I like it. That's a great answer, actually. So you're working on your everyday carry. Yeah. And the. Well, I do artwork every day, too. If it's, if it's, I do lots of things for my everyday care that, that isn't a physical object. Like I work on an art piece, I do that every day. And then the final question I ask everybody is about a book they might want to suggest to, to the audience. It can, and if there's not a book, it can be a, a podcast, a movie, music. It can be anything, just something that's going to broaden horizons for the audience. Yeah, there's a great book that I read. It's called Resilient. 
and it's by Dr. Stephen Southwick and Dennis Charney. And what these two gentlemen did is they interviewed hundreds of people that were in life or death situations that probably should have died, but they didn't. And they interviewed them trying to find common traits and resiliency. And resiliency is the word that gets thrown around a lot. I don't really think you can train or gain resiliency without going through the gauntlet first. But what these gentlemen did is they interviewed all these people and they published this book. And then the book goes through with these common traits that these people had. And I can't remember there's under 10 or 20 or 30 common traits that these people have. And it was very valuable. I read through it. You know, okay, I want, do I have some of these traits? And if I don't, is there a way that I can try to get some of them to improve how I can better manage the stresses and my resiliency with uh, my everyday life? So it was, it's a really good book. I speak at conferences often and I reference this book and I go through the top 10 in my presentation. And it was states for me to read that and I share it with as many people as I can. So yeah, it's the resiliency of the science of mastering life's greatest challenges by Stephen Feltwick and Dennis Charney. When I'm fascinated because I'm going to definitely have to read that book. So I appreciate that. And one more time, where can everybody find you? Yeah, dancingphotos.com, D-A-N-S-U-N, photos.com. Just put that into Google or in your, in your URL line and you'll see me there. On Facebook, I usually put my social media, my images and my narratives. I like putting those on social media because people will respond and Sometimes reading the comments, I know when I put an art piece, it's rolling a snowball down the hill, and then as the world gets bigger, and then the comments just keep growing, and people interact and they talk about it, and it's interesting to see what our peers often again goes on a tangent that isn't even let has anything to do with the art piece that I posted on my Facebook page is where you see most of that type of stuff happening. That's usually where I post the images first, and then I'll put them on the web page after. Awesome. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'll link to your page on the show notes. I'll link to the art that we discussed so that people can get a feel for what we were talking about. Cause I, I don't think I gave it. I don't think I did justice to the art, obviously through my words and then I'll link the book as well. And that's a great resource. So I appreciate the time you've taken with us and it's been a great conversation. Thank you very much. No, yeah, thanks for having me on your show. I always like to have an opportunity to uh, you speak with my peers. Like I said, thank you very much. It's been an honor, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. And I will, I'll let you know when the show's coming out. It should be in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's fair. Let me know, and then I'll definitely share it on my social media platforms. Awesome. Thank you very much, sir. Great. Thanks. Have a good day. Go have a good day. We're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website thethingsweallcarry.com for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.